Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heartfills podcast, where we are exploring the intersection between racial justice and pop culture and seeking practical insight for social progress. I I, I tripped up a little bit there. <laughs> but social actually, progress. just sounded like I was really excited about social progress and we should keep it. I'm your host, Andre Henry. And I'm Trisha's. And we have a very special guest joining us today for today's conversation. My good friend, formerly known as Science, Science Mike. I don't think he goes by that anymore. Um, Mike McCarg is here with us. Good Thanks for being here, here Mike. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Mike, I want to tell people about what you do. But to me, you're like the architect from The Matrix. And that would not tell them anything, actually. So <laughs> That's actually his full bio. <laughs> That's actually a fantastic way to describe what I do. Okay. Because get into I it. am the architect for The Matrix for places that only exist in imagination. In your imagination, yeah. So my job is to really develop uh, storytelling worlds for film, television, and gaming. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's what I do. Yes. Mike is easily the smartest person I know. And wow. one of my, one of my best me. friends. Uh, <laughs> I am sorry you had to find that out this way, Trish. <laughs> I'm hurt. <laughs> this is the this is the most awkward way to find this out. But <laughs> you know what? I'll um, forgive you because last week you you said I was a ten out of nine. Yeah, for sure. So easily, if I can't easily be the, smartest, the most attractive I'll be the person prettiest. that I know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and also brilliant. So wait, I, mean, I thought I was the most attractive <laughs> person. You know? I. I'm in so much trouble after this. Mike and I have I'm like have completely opposite perceptions of ourselves. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna have to buy so many edible arrangements after this after this podcast. <laughs> okay, so, anyway, okay, so we're doing our check-in. How's everybody doing? How you doing, Trish? Let's start with you. Okay, I'm stressed. I'm stressed because the people in this neighborhood like to set off fireworks for no reason all the time. Yeah, because they're and like, you know fuck what? yeah, it's Resurrection Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really just need excited. you all to know it is April 11th. <laughs> so they and were Trisha's setting off fireworks on, on fire. <laughs> they were setting off fireworks on Easter, but then also the day after Easter, and my dog is terrified terrified of fireworks so they'll set off yeah. like four fireworks and then he will be panting like hyperventilating for hours after and i'm just like yeah. wrapping him in a weighted blanket like holding him it is so it's so stressful like i feel i can feel like the wear on my nervous system so that's how i am how are y'all doing <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm sorry to hear about that and real, you know, thoughts and prayers for Cheddar because it must be very confusing and terrifying. Oh, wait, to be did a you dog. just call my dog Cheddar? Oh my gosh. You know what? I keep thinking of <laughs> I keep thinking of that dog from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Sorry, Curry. <laughs> they are the same type of dog, I think. Okay. I was like, I'm wow, sorry, made Curry. <laughs> Cheddar and Curry are very different vibes. <laughs> they are different sure. vibes. They are different vibes. Curry is easily much cooler than Cheddar, but the yeah, I do get, I do get, I, I did get them confused from the, with the dog from Brooklyn Nine Nine at the moment. Now I want to try a Curry Cheddar. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound bad, actually. It does not sound terrible. Mm -mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm finishing up my EP been working on that a bit today actually and that's going really well so i mean i feel good i think i'm gonna get some pasta later we all know how much i love pasta i would eat it for every meal if i could i guess nothing's stopping me um but yeah <laughs> doing really great Hoping type 2 to... diabetes maybe <laughs> <laughs> gonna um hoping to release that next month and really excited about the next single is Make It to Tomorrow, which I'm seeing a lot of uh, excitement about. <clears throat> and the last single, too. Like, I've gotten some really great feedback. Not a lot of people are listening to it, but the quality of, of engagement on Soft has been We really want amazing. the quality over quantity. 
No, seriously, like someone sent me a message and was like, hey, I let my daughter listen to your song and she played it for her boyfriend because they've been having communication issues and it helped him to open up. And I'm like, if that was the only thing that happened for me releasing that song, I would feel amazing about that. So I'm feeling pretty good. Mike, what's going on with you? Oh, gosh, I've been working on my next record, which is uh, all solo bass, Uh, (laughs) bass guitar, nothing else. Uh, no skips, I swear. Uh, it is. It is just. It's going to be a hot record. Just, so, just solo bass. Solo bass. Yeah. yeah. Now multi tracks. I'll start like with like, <laughs> you know, like a percussion, but like I'll you know hit the pickups and yes. Um, is it in the I'm style? Just kidding. Of, no, I'm I'm well. <laughs> is it in the style of Seinfeld though? Because <laughs> is it like Seinfeld bass? Because I could be. I could get into that maybe. I mean, there's a little slap and pop. There's some finger style. And then there's there's one, uh, my favorite track, I just slide octaves. Nothing else. Just... <laughs> oh, great. Mike, now I see it's why so you had so many followers on the internet. You're quite, <laughs> quite a funny man. <laughs> uh there's layers to Mike. He's like a parfait. <laughs> You've described me that way too, so. I described you as a parfait as well. You I mean, did. Describe someone described me as a parfait, parfait as well. So we're all parfaits. We're here. All parfaits. If I'm a parfait, it's like whipped cream, strawberries, yogurt, peas, peas. beef, beef. <laughs> shortcake. Just a bunch of stuff that does not go together. But I mean, it is in layers. I was with you until we got to peas. I might have even kept the beef. <laughs> it's beef true. doesn't sound bad. I'm, I'm, yeah, beef parfait. So you're like a shepherd's pie. With fruit. yeah, like a shepherd's pie mixed with a parfait. <laughs> a parfaitered pie. Oh my gosh, y'all stick around. We'll be back after the break. <laughs> All right, so I've gathered us here today to ask you all a question. Specifically, (laughs) Mike, uh, since he's like one of my only white friends. (laughs) Mike and Jenny... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, um, okay, so I actually asked Trish about this the other day And listeners, uh, feel free to chime in on this wherever that's possible I think we're going to have a TikTok soon So I was listening to Phineas Who is actually one of my, one of my recent favorite singer-songwriters um, I always love to find someone's music that maybe I haven't listened to And then I'll just listen to that artist for like months <laughs> You know, like listen to everything that they've created because mm-hmm. it inspires me. And so Phineas was one of those late last year. And his song, The Kids Are All Dying, was, you know, when I listened to it, I was like, man, this is kind of like a song that I would like to write. The reason I say kind of is because in the second verse, he does, he says this line, or no, it's the first verse, the end of the first verse. He goes, I tried saving the world, but I got bored. And I'm like, what? a trite little line about social injustice mm-hmm. because and and a very and it sounds like a privileged line as I'm saying it too like you tried like you tried saving the world but got bored and it made me think of you know as a singer songwriter who cares about social justice I try to write I try to write about more than just relational drama like I, I want to write songs that have something to do with my passions and I've run into this issue whenever I get to white guy social justice music <clears throat> I ran into it with John Mayer, like his continuing album. His continuum album, I think, is one of his best, maybe his best album. Um, arguably one of them, though, right? And I love that song, Waiting on the World to Change. I also love the song, Belief, you know, because um, the groove, first off, that guitar lick, ding, 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 amazing. However, same kind of vibe. Yeah, we're never going to win the war. We're never going to stop the system. We're never going to beat this if, if belief is what we're fighting for. Very pessimistic. And another one of my favorites uh, last year, or no, the year before, I got into Billy Joel one morning, which I shouldn't tell you what I was doing because I was high while I was doing it. 
So let's just start. Let's just say I was high because I was. And I was like, you know what? I want to listen to Billy Joel. And Uptown Girl came on. And that was the best time I ever listened to Uptown mm-hmm. Girl uh, being high on an edible. And I was like, this song is amazing harmonically. It got me deep into Billy Joel. And there's a song that he has called Angry Young Man about... <laughs> it's funny. Angry Young Man is about one of the roadies on a, Billy jo- on a Billy Joel tour who was apparently a leftist social justice guy. And he wouldn't stop talking about his political beliefs. <clears throat> and he got on Billy Joel's nerves so badly that he wrote this song called Angry Young Man. And I just thought about this yesterday. If you listen to the intro of this song, it's like, first off, the intro is like three minutes long in itself. It's like a classical overture. And Billy Joel is playing like on the piano. It's crazy complicated. I'm like, damn, Billy Joel was very angry. Just by how aggressively he's playing the piano on this track. So anyway, I all this context, I asked Trish one day, why are the white guys so sad? Because all of these, when we get to like these social justice uh, songs or political songs from white guys, oh, and the lyrics in Billy Joel's Angry Young Man, let me just put that one in there too, because I, lo- I love this song. It reminded me of some of the bullshit I experienced as an activist on the street. You know, careerism, people just looking for platforms, um, people hiding behind whatever kind of marginalized identity they have or can contrive to avoid accountability, all this kind of stuff. So when, when I really felt like social movements were full of shit, <clears throat> which I don't, I'm not that pessimistic anymore, but there was a time feeling that way when I was burnt out. Angry young man really spoke to me, but when he gets to the bridge, he goes, I believe I'm past the age of consciousness and righteous rage. I found that just surviving is a noble fight. I'm seeing a theme here, right? Like of kind of this casual, I can pick up social ju- interest in social justice when I want to. I can put it down when it, get, when it, when it becomes boring or too much or I, I feel tired or whatever. <clears throat> so then I asked Trish, have you noticed that the white guys, when they sing about <laughs> social justice, seem really sad and pessimistic? And so that's why I asked Mike, one of my only white friends, to come on the show. Not just because Mike is white, because you can be white and not know that you're white. But Mike does know that he's white <laughs> and has thought a lot about white identity. And so I do want to ask about the, <clears throat> from, you know, both of your perspectives, why do you think that these songs have such a pessimistic view? But specifically for Mike, there's something about being white that I'll never understand from experience that I want to ask, that, I, that I'm asking here. Because I'm wondering uh, where, why don't we start here? What's it like being white? <laughs> <clears throat> it's like being a parfait. Uh. <laughs> <Barn beef. laughs> being white is awesome is it if you can ignore or deaden yourself to the implication your whiteness has on everybody else but it uh which will i think drill down to the topic of the episode as we yeah. proceed but uh, yeah, we're starting meta. We're going way, We're going to the top floor and work our way down. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a total expert here. I am a white guy. I have bipolar disorder, so I also am often very sad, at least especially before I started taking psych meds. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely know a lot about white guy sadness and hopelessness. Yes. Um, but, you know, as a, like a straight presenting, able presenting white man, what am I used to? Uh, when I start talking, everybody else stops. Mm. When I ask a police officer, what are they doing right now? They tell me respectfully. Mm-hmm. Um, when I uh, am a decently kind friend or father or husband, I am lionized and celebrated mm-hmm. by people of all kinds of identity. Like I'm a decent person, but because I'm a decent person and a white guy, <laughs> my life for years has been people of other intersections of identity saying like, 
you're an amazing person. It's like, I could, I'm actually a mediocre person, but I'm being mm-hmm. graded on a curve right uh, now. I see. Um, any like time I uh, have an idea for a venture, it tends to work because I can speak corporate and I can walk into a room with people with money and they see gray in my beard and white on my face. <laughs> and I say terms like efficiency and return on capital. And like, this guy, <laughs> this is the guy we should work with. That's, I mean, that's what it's, it's, oh, I heard the best thing. I'm going to do the widest thing and appropriate someone else's thoughts. Um, I heard a woman of color on TikTok Uh say, being a white guy is playing the game of life on the lowest difficulty setting. It doesn't mean there aren't challenges. (laughs) It doesn't mean you don't have to do things to progress. It just means it's easier for you than everyone else. And I thought, wow. You nailed it. That is exactly what it's like to be a white man. Wow. So why are white guys so sad? Because, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Everything you just described sounds awesome and also reminds me of, I think it's that Eddie Murphy sketch from SNL where, like, he, he dressed up as a white person and he goes to, like, I think a newsstand and he wants some gum and they're like, just take it. He's like, what? Yeah, take it, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, with, with what you just described... <laughs> No, Trish, were you going to say something? I was going to give my okay, theory yeah, yeah, yeah. and then see if, if my thought was accurate. Okay. Okay. Because Andre actually asked me this question a while ago. And it was a couple weeks after my friend Ben asked me a similar question. But Ben is a white man. <clears throat> and what Ben said to me was, it seems like you're so knowledgeable about all of the awful things that are happening in the world, but you still seem to be very joyful and hopeful. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand how that is. And my theory is that when you grow up as a person of color, you grow up being aware of how awful the world can be. And it just becomes a part of your life and you learn to live life with joy Mm. and you learn to live life with hope because otherwise it's just too difficult to generally get through. But white men in particular often learn about the cruelties of the world at a later stage in life where Mm. they haven't learned to be able to hold joy and to hold hope while also hoping, while also holding the realities of the world at the same time. So that was my theory. So Trish, if, so are you saying kind of like they're, they kind of have this ignorance of is bliss experience for at first. Right. Until something, something interrupts that. Right. And then it's, it's devastating. Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? I'm just saying that they, they did not have to learn how to hold multiple truths at the same time. Whereas Mm -hmm. like when I was, you know, 16, I was like pretty sure my boyfriend broke up with me because his dad was kind of racist. But oh, wow. I still wanted to go to prom and have fun. Like, wow. and I learned to be able to have fun knowing yeah. that that was also the truth. And I just was able to grow up holding that the reality of the world is that it's really beautiful and prom is really fun. And that people <laughs> like this guy's dad exist. And that's not yeah. fun and that sucks and that's sad. Um, but I grew up learning to hold both of those things. And it's Mm -hmm. easier to be able to do that when you're doing it from a younger age, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I have questions for you, but I want Mike to to comment on whether... Yes, I would like Mike's opinion. I appreciate the invitation. As uh, you know, Andre, my instinct is to (laughs) wait and to defer (laughs) uh, to others. I think, yes, Trish, by the way, yes, all, 
I would add a little bit of additional nuance. White men experience adversity, often severe adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, when we experience adversity, it is personal and not systemic generally. So a white man who experiences horrific abuse from a parent experiences adversity, but it's a personalized adversity, not a systemic. Mm-hmm. When white men experience systemic adversity, and they do all the time, thanks to class warfare in mm-hmm. uh, the United States around the world, mm-hmm. um, it is framed as personal. Ah. Uh... So if you're a white man, there are so many examples around you. If you are extremely poor, if you are disabled, if you know you, you have some intersection of identity that create additional marginalization, there are so many examples in your personal life of white men who began in similar circumstances, but are now business owners, are now top salespeople, are now PhD researchers because life's on easy mode, right? Not to take away the accomplishments of white men who began at the very lowest uh, levels of income and household wealth and succeeded. I'm not saying they didn't work for it, Mm -hmm. but I am saying they are then used as a mythology Mm. to make other white men unaware that there are systemic issues that impact them, even though those systemic issues are less steep than those who face people of other intersections of identity. And yes, that does create a joyless life because if everything is hyper-individualized mm-hmm. and my life is not satisfying, that is what? My fault. Wow. I have failed because I achieved this career and I'm not happy. Or I'm married with children and I'm not happy. So I have failed in some way I cannot determine. And I think that why white men have the fewest friends of anyone else, why they are the loneliest, why they have the highest rates of death by suicide. Wow. Uh, This hyper-individuality is alienating. Um, And as I'm sure we'll dig into how that intersects with justice as as we talk more, I I think that that insight uh, begins to tell us a lot. Oh, my Hmm. gosh. Yeah, this is making me think of... No, go ahead, Trish. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just wondering, how does that translate to the nihilism in Mm -hmm. the view of the world and in just the hopelessness of being able to make any changes systemically? Yeah. It goes back to the first thing, life on easy mode. Mm -hmm. If I want to start a business, what happens? I start a business and it works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every company I've ever joined I've started at the bottom and I've gone to the top. Uh And so then if you are a sensitive and empathetic white man at some point and you get to know people outside of your intersection of identity and you realize their lives are different, you go, well, I've started three businesses. We can fix racism by Tuesday. (laughs) Because now I'm here. Uh White saviorism, right? That's why it's such a common first reaction. Mm -hmm. For white mm. men entering justice spaces, I'm here to save mm. the day. Because in their experience, they've saved the day a bunch. Yeah. Just got to yeah. do that again. And so when they apply the same tools inside the system that make them successful against yeah. the system, the system goes, no, right. your ah. tools don't work outside the system. They only work inside they also, the system. And so maybe for the first time in their life, a white man faces true defeat they also they also make enemies within movements by showing up that way so Mm. i can see i can see in both directions right like first off the thing that you're used to doing isn't working and you're also pissing people off around you right Mm. yes like because now like there's been there was a study i can't remember what the name of it right now i actually do have it in in my book i i mentioned it in the white men explain things to me chapter where <laughs> it's a great chapter <laughs> where um there was a study that where all of these black and and people of color and indigenous activists were talking about their activist burnout and a huge part of their activist burnout was white activists mm. <clears throat> so i could imagine if you are a white person and you join you know you join to try to make a difference 
and you end up just making a mess and making people mad at you, like mm-hmm. you're looking at, well, well, shit, like what's left? Yeah. Might I tell a story in response? Of course. Would that interrupt Would what either of you that. wanted to say? <laughs> this happened to me personally. I started a oh, shit, countercultural yes. podcast that mm. was extremely popular. And we uh, saw issues in society and named them in places they weren't typically named. At scales, they certainly weren't named. Yeah. And on this podcast, we did an episode on LGBTQ identity and the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went all over the country recording interviews and getting perspectives. And we worked really hard. Yeah. And in the episode, which had all these voices, there was not one person of color. Mm. Not one. Yeah. Mm. Which didn't really occur to us. Actually, I think my co-host said, hey, there's no people of color on this. And I said, well, we can't include everyone every time. Mm. We'll do another episode later. Mm. So we dropped this episode and it gets millions and millions and millions of downloads. And yeah, a lot of queer people, white queer people are like, oh, this is life changing. And a lot of white straight people are like, this is really challenging what I think on this issue. Yeah. And queer people of color on Twitter took us to task. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it hurt so bad mm-hmm. because I was like, well, we did this for you. We're trying to. Yeah help uh-huh. and i was so dismayed and uh and i wanted to shut down yeah mm-hmm. because i was like well if you're not grateful for what i've done Ooh. then you can handle this yourself wow. and then i kind of heard that in me and i was like well that's not who you are and that's not your personality right and so i decided <laughs> instead uh, to listen. And so I started asking people questions. Hey, I'd like to learn. And then people would say like, it's not my job to teach you. And I'd go, okay, how, I don't know how, I'm good at Google. I don't know where to start here. And then some people, a small number saw, yeah. I genuinely wanted to learn and then made like a, these are close friends of mine now, mm-hmm. wanted to make a personal investment of their time and energy mm-hmm. because they found me to be genuine. Mm-hmm. And it changed the way I relate to the entire world that experience. And I went, yeah, this is what happens when white guys give up. Because a lot of white men around me yeah. gave up. Wow. Yeah, sure. I was like, I'm not, no, like this is, there's something to learn here. I have, I've always known I have blind spots and it's a gift when someone can speak outside of my perspective. And so I realized like, People are giving me a free PhD. Mm-hmm. And so then when I, you know, some people invest in me and then I just sort of started passively watching, following people on social media, buying books, learning. And I entered like a quiet period mm-hmm. where I was like, I have some work to do before I can not only be a part of this conversation, but show up in this work without causing more harm than help. Mm-hmm. And I became aware that that pivot point isn't one that many white men make it across. Yeah. You were at a fork in the road. You could have gone either way. You could have been like, well, fuck you guys. Honestly, fuck all <laughs> of this. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I would have been fine if I did. And that's the trouble. Yeah. Uh-huh. If I would, actually, if I would have said like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I would probably not have almost gone bankrupt. Do you see what I mean? Like the system gets angry when a white man actually crosses that bridge. (laughs) Resources get pulled back. Opportunities go away. Trish, what are you processing over there? By the way, I'm not, that's not, there's not play of island for Mike. I I hope that didn't come across that way. No, 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 not at all. It just, it doesn't come off that way at all. Um, it's just, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but not being able, you know, just not having the perspective um, of, of coming from that, that place. It's, 
it's so it's so different. It's so different. Like in my my experience is, you know, you just try and try and try and try and most of the times it's not going to work mm-hmm. and then a little bit of the times it does work. So when I I get really frustrated when people are like things never change and I'm like, "Oh, but like my friend did this thing and like my friend wrote this book and like I I gather all the small the small ways that things are changing cuz I have to like hold on to those yeah. things, but also because like that's just I'm used to things I'm used to very small wins. Yeah. And that's like, that makes me kind of sad to even say, but I'm used mm-hmm. to the small wins mm-hmm. and the small wins are enough to, um, to keep me going. But I'm curious why you think that you were able to push past that, that turning point when a lot of well at least a lot of these artists were referring to just kind of sit in the um sit in the despair era of that yeah yeah like i think i can answer that i'm gonna try to not make it a novel (laughs) give me a moment to synthesize yeah so the social scripting for masculine maturity is kind of depicted as like calm calm Mm -hmm. tranquility and a submissive submission to the system. There's actually, uh, there's a book called Save the Cat that's about screenwriting. And one of the Save the Cat formulas is called Rites of Passage. And in Rites of Passion, they're tales of like pain and torment and life is the antagonist. And the transition to victory in Act 3 is what? Submitting to life, realizing life is wow. not fair and accepting it. Right? So this is literally a Hollywood script model that depicts masculinity as you're mature when you're like you know what i can only do what i can do i can like make sure my kids are fed and be nice to my neighbors and so that's already in the media landscape and um and the other thing is like white men aren't generally used to real accountability accountability is like are you performing white masculinity or not if you are there's no accountability for accountability is to make sure that you are performing that that you are yeah, you're you're doing yes, mm. and then you have white spiritualism, which is like fundamentally misogynistic and transcendent. It takes us away from our bodies. It takes us into mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so when you kind of put all that in a, in a, a disgusting or soup, parfait. a disgusting parfait, <laughs> fantastic callback. Uh, most white men don't have the tools on their own to make the bridge. So what happened to me? I, I actually know exactly what yeah. happened to me. I'm bisexual, I'm autistic, I'm narcoleptic, I have a brain injury. I literally can't get through life without relying on other people because Mm -hmm. I'm autistic. I didn't have any friends in elementary school. My only friend was a black Mm -hmm. child, Mm -hmm. the only black child in the whole school. And then in middle school, when white bullies would brutalize me, um, a... I don't know, 16-year-old seventh grader named Nate threatened to kick the shit out of my bullies, and I started following him around. So I was literally a young white man physically protected by a black boy. And I'm very empathetic. And so I had too many personal countercultural experiences to accept the narrative. And then I discovered in my opinion, the most dangerous idea in the face of white supremacy, and that's intersections of Mm. identity. So if you look at Billy Joel and John Mayer and and the the other uh, artist whose name is Finnegan, Phineas, sorry, Uh, (laughs) I'm old. When I looked at their lyrics, what did I notice? No understanding of intersections Mm. of identity. No mm. ability to discern between state or mm. police violence and protest, mm. right? And then here's another thing you already named. White progressives and activists and leftists can be obnoxious yeah. and tiring, mm. <laughs> not just to white men, to <laughs> everyone. We can be insufferable. So when you put all these things together, I feel like intersectionalism is called wokeism for a reason. It's to make white men and women, but mostly men, afraid to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can identify intersections of identity, then you can identify power dynamics. And if you can identify power dynamics, 
it transforms the way that you see the world and produces subtext mm. and context and nuance. And those things are difficult and not easy to yeah. control. And, and that's what I think is at play here. And, and the, the, the thing that got me over the final eureka in my life was intersectionalism. It was mm. this notion that all the forms of identity you have come together and dictate so yes, much, an unfair yes. amount of how your life unfolds. This is bringing me mm. back to, you know, when feminist the beginning of feminist movements, they talked about patriarchy as the problem without a name. That was one thing they, that was one thing they used to mm -hmm. call it because mm -hmm. in these consciousness raising groups, you know, you had men kind of systemically gaslighting women like, Oh, no, your life is great in the home, like being being my property. You know what I mean? You don't need to go talk to your neighbors about what it's like, you know. And these consciousness raising groups helped helped women to understand that their their unhappiness was a was a collective mm -hmm. problem. But when I think about mm -hmm. the problem without a name, I think about first off, like one of my one of my understandings of systemic oppression is that they're all connected. So the problem without a name, I could tell you, like, in my experience, that felt like anti-blackness. You know, anti-blackness felt like a problem without a name because white people are constantly telling black people, we fixed that. You know, Abraham Lincoln, like, gave it the one punch. Dr. King gave it the two punch before ascending into heaven. Mm -hmm. And now we don't have to think about, you know, racism anymore, right? So, like, mm -hmm. that's the problem mm -hmm. without a name. And so when I heard you talking about what white men are experiencing as subjects of capitalism but unable to name it also subjects of patriarchy and unable to name it bell hooks is really rocking my world right now because she she writes a lot about how men benefit most from patriarchy but are still victims of patriarchy as well right the way that it the way that it it puts this tight little box around your identity and says you are only supposed to feel, experience, act, you know, you know, these certain ways. And I can see a bit how, like, yeah, if you think, if you pathologize yourself, right, for being unhappy under capitalism, that can drive you up a wall, you know, because you... Yes don't have a systemic understanding of, of society and what this is. You don't, have a, you don't have a consciousness that this is collective suffering. And so you are trapped blaming yourself. You know, how could you mm -hmm. not feel, you know, how could you not feel nihilistic in that situation? And if you go nihilistic and you write a song about it or a tweet about it or a book about it, your retreat from a thing that made other white people uncomfortable gets incredible praise and encouragement and you get money for that. Yes. Yeah. You get money, but you get more than money. You get accolades. Mm -hmm. You get affection. Yeah. You get things that the system usually forbids you yeah. from getting. Like, it's like, okay, well, just this one time, just this one time, other white men are going to tearfully tell you how important you are. Mm. Well, that cut just all. It's just a giant bag of manure. It's wow. so terrible. I am so glad I asked a white person what it's like being white now. Because, like, I mean, I, I genuinely <laughs> feel, I mean, I feel sad, but I feel kind of grateful that I feel sad about it for some reason. Is this what white people feel like when black people tell them about anti-blackness? <laughs> You're like, I feel sad, but I feel kind of grateful that I feel sad because I'm more aware of this eventually first okay. you're just guilty <laughs> at first it's just I am a worm uh yeah uh, yes <laughs> okay Trish I have a question for you Trish sorry yeah not your government name well actually I know your actual either I know your actual government name you do know my government yes. name we we won't say it you know but it's very Caribbean. We when won't. I when I learned your actual government name, I was like, "That is the most Caribbean name a young lady could have." Is it? Oh yes, that's yes. so funny. At least in Jamaica, <laughs> it's a common name. 
And speaking of, you weird, know what's funny? Okay, so my my government name is Patricia. Yes, we've just told the world. My dad's name is Patrick. Grew up my whole life. I was like, oh, it's named after my dad. And a couple of months ago, my parents were like, oh, we didn't name you after him. I was like, what do you mean you didn't name me after him? We have the same name. <laughs> we have the same name. <laughs> what did that doesn't they, make any sense. How did they come up with your name? What was the inspiration? They said I was named after some like great aunt. I was like, I'm sorry, that's bullshit. This is what I'm telling you. Patricia is such a common Caribbean name. That's what I'm telling <laughs> you. I have a cousin Pat. You know. Uh, it's but my parents always they always called me Trish or Trishy. Ah, uh, gotcha. So mm. okay, know. so this is actually in perfectly in line with what I wanted to ask because when you're talking about holding things in tension and having joy and all that kind of stuff. I wondered how much of that you think you might attribute to not just being a person of color, but being Caribbean. Because, and the reason I think about that is because my heritage as a Jamaican, okay, my two cousins, Pat and Dave, right? I mean, Dave is my cousin by marriage. He is Pat's husband. Um, so, Pat is the happiest person on the planet, I'm sure. One morning, I was, like, doing some work at my mom's kitchen counter, and it's, like, 8 in the morning or 7 in the morning. Pat burst through the back door singing My Boy Lollipop after getting off of an all-night shift. She, she's a nurse. Just so you have a picture. <laughs> she is that. But if you were to ask mm. them about their lives growing up in Jamaica, it was so hard. They have been through so much, and you would never know because these people are always laughing, always joking, you know, and just their spirits are just high, right? As I'm saying that, yeah. it makes me think of this passage from a book called The Half Has Never Been Told. It's about the building of American capitalism and slavery. And they talked about this man who had been captured and they were interrogating him or something. They're, they're, they're literally enslaving him and he just burst out laughing. And I can't, remember the point that they were making i would go grab the book right now and find it but i think that would take me too long but something there is something about this there's a connection here that i'm making where it's like i know that i know that life in jamaica is hard if you're jamaican you know for most jamaicans right but jamaicans are so funny we mm. we create so much comedy we create so much music that makes people want to relax all that kind of stuff and I think it's part of our survival. So I wondered, you know, how much you mm. might attribute to being Trinidadian. Yeah, I think a lot, actually. I started thinking about that after mm. you and I talked about Carnival mm. and how it's this joyful celebration that is, um, that was really like created for for the sake of that. Yeah. And, you know, my parents, they love to go to carnival. They love, like, it's insane to me how much they, like, can drink and stay out for this, like, few mm -hmm. days. But I've never really thought about Caribbean culture as sort of this defiant, joyful culture, mm -hmm. which, which is what it is. Yeah. But I think I see that so much in in my parents. I mean, I did grow up with my um, extended family. Yeah. But I definitely see that in my parents um, and the way they, they talk about their parents living very, very difficult lives. But that's that was never the point of the story. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's sort of like that was it's not that it was glossed over, but like when I hear stories about these people who live difficult lives, the stories are never about the difficulty of their lives. Right. That's not the focus of it. And last year, mm. for my birthday last year, um, I was in Mexico with my parents and a couple of friends. And my, my mom's um, brother, my uncle, he passed away from COVID right when we got there. Um, and he was young and it was not expected that he was going to, they thought he was going to be out of the hospital, you know, like the next day. Mm -hmm. And my friends there, um, what they noticed 
was how my mom was able to take this information and mourn her brother and at the same time be celebrating life Mm. in his name Mm -hmm. because he would have wanted her to enjoy being in Mexico with her daughter for her birthday. And I've kind of Mm. just thought like part of that is like, yeah, that's who my mother is. But, but both of my parents, um, I think Mm. are very much of their culture where they will, they will find joy. They will, um, they, they will not fixate on negative. Yeah. They will not fixate on difficulty. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think a lot of that is um is probably the culture I grew up in. My dad is like that. My mom was like that. I remember my mom telling me one time, Andre, it's just life. Don't take it so seriously. You know. <laughs> like Yeah. You know, my dad is like that, you know. And I'm thinking right now when I was living in Colombia, my ex-girlfriend's dad who loved me, right? I think because she had dated a lot of uh, extranjeros, uh, foreigners, who didn't speak Spanish. And I think just the fact that I spoke Spanish, she was like, I love this guy. He's part of the family. You know, He did say I was part of the family. She was like, he's never said that about anybody. But anyway, we threw a party for her mom mm-hmm. in my apartment. <clears throat> and he's coming, he comes up to me and he says, Andre. Um, I'm not even going to get into that. Andre. <laughs> right? And he's like, basically telling me in Spanish, he said, I have depression, but I just keep telling myself, no tengo nada, no tengo nada, no tengo nada, no tengo nada. And I know that like, I am a huge advocate for like, feel your feelings, own your feelings, be honest about your feelings. You know, you don't have to fake it till you make it. It's actually not good for you. Um, but while I was there in Colombia, it made me you know, I, I also try to just be aware that, like, I'm coming from North America where I have a level of privilege that they don't. And so I want to really listen to how they, how they think on their own terms, right? I keep thinking mm-hmm. about Jesse is his name. I, I think about Jesse all the time and him looking at, standing in my kitchen and going, no tengo nada, no tengo nada. And... I think that there is a part of that that is like, we know, my dad knows, my mom knew, Jesse knows. They can't afford <laughs> to get too far into mm. despair because as far as yeah. the social hierarchy goes, they're on the first or second or bottom floor. You know mm. what I'm saying? Like they can't, yeah. uh, they can't afford to let it break them down because you know, that's, that'll be it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They can't fixate on it. You know? Yeah. Um, well, that's what the, the hopelessness, the, the nihilism, it's, it's really, it's a privilege to be able to just be like, nothing, nothing matters. Cause all of those guys are going to be fine. Like it's true. different than being like, Oh, if these things don't change, this direct directly will affect me and my family. And like, it's, it's a different level of, um, in investment no, when absolutely true. Absolutely true. Like yeah. Phineas can say, I tried saving the world and I got bored, but he doesn't have to worry that if the cops pull him over tomorrow, they might kill him. You know, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I tried saving the world too. And uh, I got burned mm-hmm. out, you know, and burned, you know. But I mean, yeah, my mental health is messed up because of my awareness of systemic racism. Yeah, and it would. I don't think we have the we don't have the privilege of just being like, this is hard, so I'm going to stop. Yeah, exactly. There's too much at stake, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, if <laughs> if you were like, uh, yeah, I'm just going to not think about rape culture. Like, your body is at <laughs> stake in that decision, right? You yeah. Know, my body is at stake in, like, not thinking about anti-blackness anymore. Even though there are plenty of black people who don't. But, 
But I think once you're waking up, like, that's just not an option anymore. But what also really stands out to me mm-hmm. from this conversation, what I think I'm going to take away from this conversation, and I'm curious about what you're going to take away from this conversation, Trish, or what you think you might take away, is <clears throat> something from Mandela's autobiography. Okay, Mandela's one of my favorite freedom fighters, even though he's problematic. <laughs> Partly for just leaving his wife like that for Winnie Mandela. Did y'all, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but he had a whole wife when he met Winnie Mandela and just was like, <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell her if you don't. So, um, but one, <laughs> one of the things I like about him or that challenged me about him was talking about his time in Robben Island. And he said that, a revolutionary always has to be ready to defend the cause. And he would befriend the guards at Robben Island because his perspective was that his oppressors were all also oppressed by the common sense of the ruling class that allowed them to participate in the way that they did. And Mike, when you, talk, when you talked about, you know, what it's like to be white... <laughs> Um, I feel like that's what I heard is that there are so many people. We, I mean, many of us, most of us, 99% of us <laughs> are struggling to survive under this imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, as Bell Hooks would call it, right? But not all of us know that that's what the problem is. And so a lot of, we're all blaming, or many of us are blaming someone, right? I hear a lot of black, not not just black men, I hear a lot of men blaming women. I hear a lot of white folks blaming people of color and black people. I hear a lot of rich people blaming poor people, you know? Um, And so, but what I hear is that part of what it is like to be white is to be suffering under a system that is exploiting you, causing you harm, and not knowing it, and blaming mm-hmm. yourself. And that sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not joining any white liberation movements, but, but I feel for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The very notion of a thing existing is a horrible vision. I think for me, the takeaway. I think for me, the takeaway is how seemingly immovable these structures are. Yeah. And when compared to participating and working within the structure, um, to me, that was really interesting. Um, The idea that for, for white men, when they try something, it generally works. And then when trying to change a system, it doesn't work. And then that is very confusing and hard um, because I think it's easy to compare achievement inside and outside of the system when those are just like really incomparable things because one is meant to work and one isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's my that's my takeaway. All right. This has been really heavy. <laughs> We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back and play our game. <laughs> Got pots like sugar, but they ain't sweet. Turn it spin and it spin in the sweltering heat. Turn it faded and I hate it. They look greater than they should be. Fill me up with cotton candy. Pots like sugar, but they ain't sweet. Turn it spin and it spin in the sweltering heat. Is it time for the culture quiz? It's time for the culture quiz. It's time for the culture quiz. Oh, that could also be cool. We can, Are you ready? We can make like a little twerk song to it. It's, yeah. I forgot, I, like what that. They, I forgot what they call Bounce music. That's what it is. Yeah. In New Orleans. Um, so, sorry, I know we want to get off of heavy topics, but the culture quiz is heavy this week. Okay, hit me. Okay. Which two Tennessee House representatives of the same first name were expelled for protesting for gun reform 
while their white colleague who did the same was not. We talked about this yesterday. on. Uh, yes, but I don't remember the other one. I think Mike, as our guest, should, should be the first to answer these. Uh, Jones is the last name of mm-hmm. one of them. Oh, gosh. I've been watching this nonstop. I, like, never watch the news. And yesterday I was like, I'm putting on Mato just in case there's an interview. And oh, there did was. Did she interview Justin Jones? And it was so wow. short. Yes. I was devastated how wow. brief the interview was. The other, oh gosh. Is it Pearson? Is that the other one? Yes. Ah. You guys combined did a great job. Uh-huh. We got Justin Squared, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson. Literal Ali. heroes. This is ah, this one really pissed me off. I have watched <laughs> the videos of their speeches like over and over on loop, just put yeah. it right in my veins. So good. Just the way they were spoken to, I was just like, it just made my skin crawl. Yeah, they were spoken to like um, children. Yeah, that, that was probably the most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but luckily they will. Ass. Yeah, they'll be reinstated and they'll have a, a bunch more money for their next election. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, all right, a lighter question for us. Which pop star ended their six year long relationship with an actor this week? Ooh. <laughs> Listen, I had a real shot at that first one. Ah, <laughs> uh, I think hmm. I know this. I think I heard about this. I think you know a pop star. The answer to this question. That was me trying to help you, but then realizing that you probably don't know the song. No, I don't. That, that, that did not anyway. help at all. Okay, I'm I'm stumped. <laughs> Taylor Allison Swift. Is that why Nick Cannon is out here talking about he wants her to have <laughs> yes. his 13th baby? Yes. See, so if you weird. had started with the black part of that news, Cannon I would have known exactly who you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it, who does Nick Cannon want to have his 13th exactly, baby? Exactly. I was like, why is Nick Cannon all of a sudden talking about having, letting Taylor Swift have his baby? So basically, he heard that she was singing now and was like, huh. Challenge accepted. Um, you know, was depressing news for me because I'm out here looking for husband, and Taylor's starting (laughs) from from square one again. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? I mean, are you don't think that you're competing with with the Taylor Swift demographic, do you? Or is it just because I don't think I am delusional? (laughs) Huh? That's it. That's it. If Taylor Swift I said, no, I'm not delusional. Someone. But if Taylor Swift can't find someone, yeah, that's can, that's the the thought. I think yeah. that maybe you should consider that. I mean, and no shade to Taylor Swift, but she has songs about a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. So like, this just seems kind of on brand. Also, celebrities break up a lot, right? Like that's like a thing, right? Probably more than regular people, right? Because their lives are so hectic and yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I think pressure. celebrities break up more than regular people. I think so, for sure. Okay. Well, like I was telling, I was telling Mike. People I'm, need people in their lives who tell them no. Yeah. Also, just leave it there. And I'm not 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 specific to Taylor Swift. That's specific to Mike celebrities. Taylor. <laughs> just kidding. Absolutely not. Um, One of my daughters would kill me if I did. <laughs> Okay, this is the this is the bummer question. Mm-hmm. Earlier this week, the Dalai Lama shocked oh the world by making gosh. by asking a young Indian boy to do what? Yeah, this is a real downer. Uh, this is a real downer. Yeah. I'm sorry, this was on the culture quiz. Yeah, <laughs> Mike, did you hear about this? Any thoughts? The Dalai I did Lama not. asked the little boy to suck his tongue. Yeah. Like, in, like, I mean, not that it would have been better in private, but it's like, this was like at like some kind of public event. Like, and he kissed the boy and, and told the boy to suck his tongue. And his people are like, well, you know, the Dalai Lama is very playful. He likes to tease people, da 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 And I'm like, I can't think of any world where, yeah, where like suck, like suck my tongue would never, that, that wouldn't even cross my mind. You know? Yeah. That doesn't sound playful at all. Um, 
That it doesn't sound playful at all. I wish I had a fun question to end the culture quiz with, but I don't. Those were all the questions I had. Okay, I have a tell us something fun. To... I I I don't I don't have a like trivia question, but I just would like to know if y'all have started watching Beef on Netflix. I haven't because I have to of. finish Love Is Blind and I have to watch the newest um episode of Succession. It's Ali Wong's new show. So I'm not on Beef territory yet. It's Ali Wong's new Ooh. show. It's produced by H24. Now I'm interested. So kind of different for Ali Wong. <laughs> it's good, That's two in a row. <laughs> and it is incredible. First off, it is the cast is almost entirely Asian American, which is just really amazing. Okay, this reminds me of like all, all of America's racist past where they used to tell people, nobody wants to see black people on the screen. Nobody wants to see brown people mm-hmm. on the screen. da, 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 da. I did not feel at all like I was missing out on anything by not seeing that. I don't think that I saw any black people in the show. Maybe, maybe there were, but they're not major players. But I just felt like I'm getting to see, first off, um, a type of representation that my Asian American friends really appreciate and tell me that they that resonates with them. And that makes me feel like really, I don't know, uh, privileged in some way that like i'm getting to see you know something that they're saying like no like there's something culturally that that resonates as real and also it's just it's funny it's compelling it is very bingeable like you are not just going to watch episode Mm -hmm. one and turn it off you're probably going to watch episode two and Mm -hmm. three and then be like you know what i should go to bed as soon as i get my dog these drugs Mm -hmm. Binging. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, that's. <laughs> did I give any context to that? Yes, yes I did you earlier. Did. For a second, I asked the same question. I was like, "Did did Trish tell us <laughs> about talk- what Curry's going through, or does everyone think that she's giving her dog cocaine now?" <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to watch it. I am also excited for the Love Is Blind season um, finale. That's going to be crazy. People are getting left at the altar this this, this this time around. I think. And then. Yeah. I only see two couples. I think we're talking about Love is Blind next week, y'all. Um, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. They should take that show off the air. But <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, thanks so much, Mike, for joining us. This has been such an amazing conversation. You are welcome to come back on the show and talk with us about anything you want to anytime. <laughs> I'll talk to y'all anytime. You know that. <laughs> Yes, Can please. I leave with a plug? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I can't plug my work anymore because it's all <laughs> private. So I'm going to plug somebody else's. Uh, first of all, if you'd like to see what I'm doing lately, just go to Spotify and search uh, either Andre, Henry, or Trisha's uh. and just hit play. <laughs> and if you listen long enough, you'll hear everything <laughs> I'm doing. So other than that, uh, it, on TikTok, at heavy on the DR, as in heavy on the doctor, oh. is Dr. Chelsea. Oh. If you've been listening to Hope and Hard Pills or this episode in specific, and you're like, man, we struggle in this giant system, this person is an amazing resource uh, because they um, look at uh, learning about the world through the lens of neurodivergence. But their, their, their thesis, wow. I think, applies to everybody. And that's that we live in, in life. And I'm going to tell you enough to tease it so you have to go learn more. I'm not going to tie it up in a bow and appropriate their work. Um, but we exist in the world. And that's just life. And then at some point, we discover more about mm-hmm. ourselves. And as we discover more about their, ourselves, particularly neurodiverse people, creates an existential crisis because we learn how the world is hostile mm-hmm. toward us and our fundamental well-being. And once you have that insight, the thesis is you can take four responsives. One is to remask and try to re-enter the system. Another is to retreat, try to go and hide. Another is to resist the system. And finally, you can rebel. You can try to leave the system completely. All of those are doomed to fail. Mm. So if you'd like to know something that can work, Go check out the work of this amazing black woman, and she will lay some amazing truth. What a plug! At heavy on the oh, awesome. dr. Follow her. 
just followed. All right, everyone. It has been such a pleasure hanging out with y'all. Um, we will see you next week. And we're going to turn it over to Ross to tell you all the things that he does. I don't actually know what Ross is saying over there. I hope it's nothing ugly. <laughs> <laughs> see y'all next week. Bye. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music. That's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S Music on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at the Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok and at Andre Henry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trish's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.